Hello, everyone. This is Alexi the Greek. And this is Ryan Cooper. We've uh, got a great episode for you in the take canon. Are you sure? Say it like you mean it. <laughs> we have uh, not not one, but two guests, uh, two professors, Michael Barrobay and Jennifer Ruth, on to talk about their book, It's Not Free Speech. And... Race, race, democracy, and the future of academic freedom, as you will see, is an important subtitle. Yeah, the subtitle that I am very good at remembering, <laughs> but that's a great conversation about free speech, academia, study, and you know, accurate knowledge of history and reality. Um, you know, the 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 things that we all know and love. <laughs> truth goodness and how you can uh berate your racist uncle not just for the odiousness of christopher rufo's influence on him uh but for for why all of these reactionary responses to attempts to educate people about history are problematic because of how dumb they are uh in addition to how odious they are yeah uh, so so we we, we kind of Bring these two guests on to, to talk about these really kind of fraught, controversial issues uh, from, you know, cancel culture to, you know, various incidents of uh, censure or firing of academics to, uh, you know, figuring out exactly what the difference is uh, between, you know, uh, white supremacists who hold tenure positions uh, who get mildly rebuked on Twitter uh, as against, you know, uh, comrades like Gio Marr being fired, uh, you know, being contingent faculty for making a, a kind of a joke about white genocide. So it's a good conversation that I think uh, gets into some tricky intellectual territory, but uh, ultimately pretty illuminating, I think. Yeah. When before we get to that, um, we've got to note that this podcast is now sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. And so if you subscribe at the $10 a month tier on Patreon, uh, you'll get a free uh, digital subscription to the magazine and also a heavily discounted uh, print subscription if you would like to have it. And... Um, we very much appreciate the sponsorship of the, you know, the prospect there. We're publishing great stuff on there every day of, of, you know, weekdays at least. And so definitely check us out. But anyway, without further ado, we can get into our interview with Michael Barabay and Jennifer Ruth. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We have two guests today on the podcast. Um, oh boy, here we go. Uh, butchering pronunciation uh, time has arrived. Is it Michael Berube? Ah. The, the, yeah. the I had written a whole book with him and I had to make sure I was saying it right. <laughs> the, there's just too many... There's too many accent marks in there for, for an uncultured swine like myself. Uh, and Jennifer Ruth? Easy. Um, so Michael is a professor of literature at Pennsylvania State University. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, Jennifer is a professor of film studies at Portland State University. 
um, and you both teach, you know, widely sort of not, not outside those specific domains, necess- not like, uh, within those specific domains, but like a lot of other stuff on like disability studies and, and so on and so forth. Um, which will, which, which may be relevant to the conversation, mm-hmm. but so you've, you've written a book called it's not free speech. Uh, you know, subtitle, why free speech is bad and why Ben Shapiro should be banned from Twitter. Wait, <laughs> no. No, that's basically it. That's not the... Uh, no, there is no subtitle. If if uh, I have one. I have no, one. It's, it's just is. higher. It's above the... T- if you that's look at the right. book, it's above. It's above. It's, it's okay. uh, spatially oh, right. confusing yes. for Ryan, but other people can see Race, it. democracy, uh, and the future of academic freedom. Right. Um, yeah, you got to have a subtitle. They won't let you out of the book. You know, the publishers will will string you up by your toenails until you come up with a subtitle because that's the way things are. It's like making a Marvel movie now. You got to have a big blue space laser that goes up at, at the end of the movie. Anyway, you know, it, it's an interesting book. I, I reviewed it in the American Prospect. We'll, we'll link the book and the review, of course. Um, and I thought, you know, the the... Where we might start uh, to to sort of dip our toes into the discussion would be to um, talk about the debate over what um, you know the 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 interaction between free speech and academic tenure. And um, I don't know, maybe Michael, you want to 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 jump in on that, you know, the, on the like outline the debates about whether you know, like what is the interaction between these two uh, conceptions of like protecting like the, you know academic study and the you know f- uh, free speech as protected by the First Amendment and the Constitution. Sure, um, I think of it. In, uh Giving an image as uh, free speech being this much larger sea and academic freedom being a distinct boat on it. It's absolutely one couldn't you can't have this without the without the ocean, but it's not at all the same thing. And its relation to tenure, basically, the American Association of University Professors simply invented this in 1915. Now they've grown out of earlier German conceptions of, of academic freedom as well. But the immediate precipitating event was the firing of Edward Ross. At Stanford, uh, because Stanford's uh, widow, <coughs> Leland Stanford's widow, <coughs> didn't like his views on labor. And the argument was you can't have university professors subject to that kind of firing by whim for ideological reasons by a donor, by a trustee, by a legislator. Otherwise, you really just don't have, you're, you're, you're missing one of the cornerstones of a free society uh, the freedom to research, the freedom to teach. And then, crucially, they added this category of extramural speech, which is basically what we're doing right now. We're talking out of the classroom. Now, all that, that's where things get really complicated, because uh, the minute I go onto Twitter, I am protected both by Elon Musk and the First Amendment. Right? <laughs> so that is clearly free speech. But in my teaching and research, there are very different standards apply. And where we got our motivation for writing this book was in seeing... First of all, the weaponization of free speech by the right over the last 10 years. Uh, we have a discussion in one chapter um, of what uh, Tim Wu calls first, many people have called First Amendment Lochnerism, where the First Amendment now is expanded to covering a hobby lobby, Citizens United, uh, church gatherings, what have you. In fact, um, even on one strained interpretation, the insurrection on January 6th. 
So there's that. But then we also saw it being imported into discussions of academic freedom as if anything goes. And we had to stop and say, no, 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 look, academic freedom is related to free speech, but we have to keep them distinct. Very late in our writing process, um, Jennifer said, you got to go back and look at Robert Post's book. Um, Democracy expertise and uh, academic freedom, a First Amendment jurisprudence, jurisprudence for a modern state. And we realized, oh, yeah, first of all, we're reinventing the wheel here, but he uses different terms democratic legitimation, uh, which is free speech, and democratic competence, which is academic freedom. They operate by two very different sets of rules. Basically, academic freedom relies on expertise and disciplinary review. It's not a, a perfect system, but it's also not a free for all. And so there are a lot of things you can get away with saying. On a, on a street corner that you should not be able to get away with saying as a university professor in your professional duties. Again, where it gets murky is where I stop talking out of my professional duties and go on to Twitter to argue that the Super Bowl was fixed, which it was. Uh, and I have, I have the receipts. But, but the curious thing is I have more protection for saying that on Twitter than I have for talking about areas uh, things in, uh, in my areas of expertise because I could go on to Twitter as, as we argue, for example, that Mark Crispin Miller does in his own on his own blog and his own work, and say things that call into question my fitness to, to teach or research at a university. So let's unpack this a little bit, Jennifer, if you wouldn't mind. Or do you want to follow up right, right away? Sure, jump in. Yes. I do, if you don't mind, because I was thinking that Ryan started us off on connection, connecting tenure, academic mm. tenure, he said. Right, right. So I'd like to say a little bit about that, and I'd like to back up and tie it to uh, what Michael brought up in terms of their origins of the concept of academic freedom around uh, Leland Stanford's wife objecting to the uh, speech. And the idea that an AUP kind of coming into being around the idea that donors, administrators without degrees, of, without competence within the field in which, you know, at, at hand, uh, politicians, they should not have a say. And what academics do, only peers should be able to be competent, are competent to evaluate and adjudicate these kinds of questions. So that's the fundamental rock on which AUP was founded. And I just want to put in another, I'm probably going to put in about eight plugs for Ryan's um, review of our book. But Ryan starts off by talking about all of the hyping of cancel culture. All right. The Connor Friedersdorf kind of articles in the Atlantic about, oh, people are freaking out about the bond. You know, the snowflakes are upset about the bond me. You look, you dig a little deeper. It's not quite the right. It's that's not quite the story. But a handful of stories get picked up and reproduced. And then he pivots. And I really, really appreciate this because I've spent the last year. Michael and I actually finished this book a while ago. And then the process months. is so damn slow. Right. You get reviewers, and then there's a paper supply issue. <laughs> thanks, thanks to Biden. <laughs> thanks to also Michelle Obama, whose book sold so well that it drained the entire country of paper. But, you know, thanks, Obama. Yeah. 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 Anyway, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> so, yeah, so it took so damn long. So with, by the time I was in sabbatical, we were actually done with the book and I had this free time. <laughs> so I joined the African-American Policy Forum's work against these uh, what Penn calls education gag orders, but are the, you know, really clearly like uh, racist dog whistling or in, and making up the Chris Ruffo line about critical race theory, et cetera, right. and started getting a bunch of Senate faculty senates across the country to pass resolutions defending academic freedom against these bills. And I was thinking about our book in relationship to that. And Ryan's review pivots from this sort of 
really kind of manuf- what what free speech and Coke money, that book by Isaac Kamal and Ralph Wilson would call the manufactured outrage that was funded by uh, you know libertarian think tanks and libertarian organizations. That manufactured outrage, um, he pivots from that to the government interference and saying yeah. there's no they're they're not equivalents. The both sidesism doesn't work here. There's a fundamentally different thing to have the government try to come in and censor what academics do. And so that to me is a fundamental distinction on our political landscape right now. And that is not, and I knew, one of the things that I was nervous about, I told Michael, I can't wait for us to be called scolds and censorious. And censorious. And 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 like liberal hystericals, right? So the difference is, the Senate resolutions to defend against these bills are the faculty Senate saying, we determine curriculum. That's another important milestone in AAUP history is saying that shared governance, faculty's prerogative is curriculum. You know, administrators might determine budgets, but faculty determine that. So the faculty do, and it's the same in our book. The last thing anyone should accept is the state interfering with academic work. So that's partly why too, we so discreetly sacked us or just cordoned off free speech in particular, because that's a whole different ballgame, right? With the First Amendment and the courts. But academics need to be able to decide who's fit, who's unfit, what we're talking about in the classroom, how we're teaching. And so we're not, the state can't censor. That's the fundamental point here. And to go back then finally to bring it back to uh, tenure. So Brian used the word academic tenure. What's the difference between free speech and academic tenure? And that is really is a fundamental that people don't put it that way that often. They put it as what's the difference between free speech and academic freedom. But tenure is what provides a person with academic freedom. And the whole system, the promotion and tenure review system that gets you into a place where you have the job security to raise controversial issues, to push boundaries, et cetera. That's what vetted you to be a peer. Now, here's the problem, though. Um, that system is really eroded. And there's yeah. a couple of different there's a couple of different factors in there. One is, of course, the erosion of tenure lines and the rise of contingent faculty and the fact that now the majority of people teaching do not have academic freedom. They are professors. They're in the classroom, but they don't have academic freedom. Um, if they get attacked for their free speech by a, a, by an outraged or their research, their research their, by an outraged student, an outraged parent, whatever, they don't have the job security. Um, so that's one way in which the infrastructure has failed us. The other way is which is that there has been you. This is arguable, right? But our position, of course, is that there has been a qualitative change or something has shifted, and we're we're, we're reaching sort of the multiracial democracy experiment of reconstruction. We're now back in that moment, in the sense, and we're experiencing another backlash. Yeah. And there are people who, with connections, and sometimes not, sometimes simply sincere or opportunist for fame or getting funded by think tanks that do free speech for both sides kind of thing. They're trying to put discredited ideas back into the academic discourse uh, as a way, as part of this backlash to a multiracial democracy. So then there are enough academics who put the, who give a veneer of respectability to some of these ideas that are fundamentally disproven. And can 99.9% of their peers would say, that's bullshit. So that, so that, those are the, those are the kind of uh, things that, you know, motivated us. I have yeah. so many questions that I need to unpack in my own brain because what you've already said, the two of you is, is uh, delving into such interesting territory. And yet it's, it's, 
I think it, it requires a lot of unpacking to help people understand why you come down, where you come down in all of this. And I think this might be helpful, uh, if I may. Uh, tell us, if you will, why it is. Because when, when you say that academic freedom or academic tenure uh, are important uh, in how they're distinct from free speech as such, and the who decides uh, what type of inclusion or exclusions are permitted, right? Uh, whether it be the faculty and committees, right, uh, in, in a university or the state, uh, that is banning curriculum in public schools, right? I think the audience wants to know, well, wait, why is it that you, who, why are you allowed to do it here? They're allowed to do it there. When can you do it? When can't you do it? And I think one argument you make that ties these together, both in your metaphor of the sea and the boat is that the rights that are in each context, context is important in your book, right? The rights in each context are tethered necessarily to certain goods, to common goods that have to do with democracy, right? So, so even, even the common good of the higher education institutions themselves are themselves good because of their role in the broader common good of democracy writ large, right? And so maybe you could talk about how the rights that are distinct in the university for faculty and the rights that pertain when you're speaking ex extramurally or as a citizen, uh, how you come to different decisions about who gets to decide and, and, and what should or shouldn't be excluded based on the fact that these things are contextually tethering those rights differently to the common goods and to the common good. Nice. I got that all. Yeah, yeah it's uh, great. I think both of us have to answer this one, but we'll go in alphabetical order again. <laughs> Uh, so let me filter that question through something we've gotten before, namely a challenge that you know, here we are talking about academics determining curriculum, academics being free, having autonomy from the state, but really universities in some ways are very conservative places. Um, uh, the intellectual boundaries can be very rigid. Uh, what, what counts as good work in some disciplines is ridiculously narrow. All that's true. So we rely on a crucial point on Joan Wallet Scott's book on academic freedom, because even though she grounds uh, peer review in sort of horizontal uh, uh, review by, by uh, one's colleagues, she also is, her whole career is testimony to how disciplines can change. She actually had to write a book, uh, an essay called Gender, right? Like a, a gender, uh, a legitimate category of uh, historical analysis. And I remember very well. In 1994, I would be 1994, at the University of Illinois, I had colleagues over <laughs> in the Department of History who weren't sure that Leslie Regan's book, When Abortion Was a Crime, was really history, because it was a history of abortion. It wasn't you know, a more traditional form of history. Uh, I am pleased to report that book won a number of awards, and Leslie eventually did get tenure, but it was like the last gasp of really hidebound old guys who didn't think abortion was a legitimate subject for, for a historian. So those things actually do need to be challenged. Over the last 40 or 50 years, we've seen, in parallel with the new social, the so-called new social movements that are now 60 years old, uh, we've seen an explosion of uh, new disciplines. I do not have a degree in disability studies. It didn't exist when I got my PhD. Yeah. And so these things are pliable. They're challengeable, but only by way of lateral peer review, as opposed to review by administrators. So the idea, do you, you invoke the common good. As strange as it may sound to a lot of people, um, the idea is that by letting a bunch of uh, crazy-ass astrophysicists speculate about the nature and the origins of the universe, and a bunch of experimental artists do their things that nobody understands, eventually this will help us understand who we are as a species, our relations to other species, our relation to the universe at large. It'll all work out. 
just let these people you know, do it and review themselves and don't subject them to political or economic litmus tests. That is the compact. Now, in the way that it serves democracy, right, <clears throat> the idea is that we are um, best left to work out our own designs, uh, intellectually and politically. And of course, that, that very concept of self is under pressure. Now, we have, as Jennifer mentioned, a whole number of people jumping ship on the idea of multiracial democracy when it's getting too multiracial for them. So that, um, that is part of the moment in which we write as well. I mean, we didn't, to go back to what the, uh, Jennifer was saying about the time lag in this book, when we were first drafting it in the fall of 2020, not a whole lot of people knew who Christopher Rufo was. Right, right. Or critical race theory hadn't yet become a thing in the news. Right, well, it hadn't been distorted beyond measure. It I, hadn't become a thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, I think that's, um, let's see, if, that, if I go back to your question, the really critical thing is, well, how does this serve the common good? How does let these professors determine what is legitimate to teach and what? how does that eventually work? And we, if you work out from the sciences, it means eventually we are not going to believe in uh, the Earth as the center of the universe. We're not going to, and more immediately for our purposes, we're not going to believe in eugenics. We're not going to believe in phrenology. And I had a debate with a libertarian law professor who said, um, um, at my own campus, and said, uh, said why, why shouldn't we explore every available idea? Why, why is it the whole terrain available to us? And I said, let's rule out the ones that led to the Holocaust, okay? Let's yeah. just do that. Right. We, we have demonstrable uh, uh, um, a path from the pseudoscience, uh, pseudo-science of eugenics to the Holocaust. That door is closed now. It should be closed. Yeah, you, I mean, maybe you want to... We'd also... Uh, um, go ahead, Brian. Um, yeah, maybe you, you could uh, expand on that a little bit, Je- uh, Jennifer. The the This this idea that that you talk about of democracy and equality being prior to free speech uh as you know in the sort of like moral hierarchy of of you know like a like a political community and i and i think that chris rufo guy is a very good example you know he's a guy like he'll he posts on twitter there's a tweet that's still up to this day about how he's just a, he's just openly lying about yep. uh, like we're going to take all the stuff we don't like and we're going to stuff it under the heading of critical race theory he was recently having an argument with Jesse single or just talking to him basically all, all but stating out li- outright that he's a huge liar and like he views uh, a political communication in a hundred percent cynical uh instrumental terms and you know he is leveraging the liberal t- like like um you know assumption of good faith in terms of speech to basically like be a fascist uh we, we in, quote in, that least, we quote that tweet and, in the book but, and, and we salute do, his commitment to making things up but michael do you remember too that we were actually in the middle of that chapter when that tweet started going yes, around so yes, literally indeed. it was within a week of him tweeting that then that we were well we were already in the chapter and then we integrated it and you just it's rubbing it in your face the fact that you can have speech that is just completely toxic and horrible to a political community. And so if you're if you if you're involved in the kind of democracy like that has to be prior to 
you know, like any sound that any person makes has to be like even a person who just openly says, I'm a huge liar and I want to kill everyone. And like, I'm going to leverage your tolerances. (laughs) You you have to to ask the question, why is it good to have speech at all first? Right. Throughout working on this, I kept returning to Hannah Arendt's lying and politics and it never is useful, but I kept going back because it gets really into Pentagon papers and all this stuff. But I kept going back to it for something really smart about what do you do when people are actually lying, cynically lying for for, for you know, profit or fame or whatever it is. Um, and it, uh, yeah, so that so that's the question with free speech. There's one thing I did want to piggyback on, and I'm actually kind of changing the subject, maybe, and returning sure. to what we finished. No problem. Yeah. Okay. Which was that Michael said, you know, there's some things and this does get to the beginning of Ryan's question about moral hierarchies and what kind of community do you want to have, um, where he says, you know, the, the ideas that lead directly to the Holocaust, we can get rid of those. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing is the degree to which racial fascism, you know, Sarah Churchwell has that wonderful article in the London Review of Books. And then oh, yeah. if you think about it, you can trace it back through a lot of black radical thought that it has happened here. Fascism has happened here. And so this idea of racial authoritarianism, the subnational authoritarianism of the Jim Crow period where the South dominated, we have had when we start to trace that line a little bit more explicitly, um, it, the question of liberalism gets thrown. In, we're not at a neutral playing ground here at this moment. Liberalism is not abstract, contentless, neutral. And the idea that you can have both sides or that free speech, that the debates around free speech are contextualized in this idea of neutrality. And that's fundamentally wrong. And this is now I want to get back to the really, in some ways, hot button question for our book, because I think it's a really good question that some of my friends when I, who work on who work on race and gender, when they would read a draft of the book, they'd be like, but we suck, too. We're the predominantly white <laughs> institutions. We're, we're like, why do you think I've been fighting these battles my whole career and being treated like shit? So why do we think why do we trust ourselves? to adjudicate this. Um, and so I, I actually, I have a pretty weak answer, but it, it's hopeful and it's relatively all we have, I think, which is this line that Michael just traced, 60 years old social movements. Michael said he didn't get a degree in disability studies, but he is, now does work in disability studies. I did, I graduated, I'm not that much younger. I'm only a few years younger than Michael, but I did, I graduated in 1991. I did get a women's studies concentration, right? So these, these movements, have kind of changed the landscape to an extent. And this is the weak part. But I have, I believe that some of these narratives that are now coming into being to, to question the neutral playing ground of free speech, the active diversity uh, efforts for faculty, that they have changed the academic playing field to some extent. And the reason why I say that it's weak is that the kind of evidence that I drive for, uh, this conclusion from are things like some of the old white guys who write these, there's just, you know, a string of them and they keep getting published in the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed. And then you look at who, who paid for their fellowship last year and, and the American Humane Society is at George Mason or these different little, you know, institutes and centers and departments that are popping up. Um, but there's just a string of them. And they, they taught, they, they do, or Eric Kaufman, the white nationalism guy, the white replacement theory guy, like, you know, white, you populist whites who are racist, they're, you know, they have a point. They're getting replaced. That guy. So they do these studies, these surveys, and then they they they, they, they um, break it down into terms of generations. 
So senior faculty, junior faculty, graduate students. And this this is maybe a little silly because it's kind of um, it may be it may seem really small and arbitrary. But one of the things that I keep going back to is the fact that IRB and human subject reviews, which on the face of it, yeah, maybe they have gotten a little crazy. Like you can't give. Can, can you tell the non-academics out there what IRB stands for? Yeah. Institutional, Institutional Review, Review Board. Board. So these organs, these things that came into being in part in response to something like Tuskegee, Tuskegee race experiments, the idea that like you know, science isn't a good and science doesn't get to overlook humane treatment, Hippocratic Oath, those kinds of things. Like, so those the, the kinds of things that came into being that said people are maybe more important than knowledge in some cases. Um, the senior faculty will talk about how ridiculous these boards are. The junior faculty and the grad students have a lot more sympathy for them. It's little things like that. And mm. witnessing, granted, I'm in Portland, Oregon, which is perhaps a little bit unique, but it's it's witnessing these things and witnessing the kind of work that's coming out that gives me hope that the academic freedom, to part of it too, is that this is a de decentralized thing. I would love to see AAUP get behind our book in some ways and help come up with guidelines and come up with you know, you know principles and stuff, but this is fundamentally a decentralized thing where academics on their local campuses would be adjudicating things, partly by finding panels of peers of outside experts, much in the way that we do with promotion and tenure review, where you have to get external experts to weigh in. Um, and so, they, you know, there is, there, you know, they'll choose wrongly sometimes and they'll choose rightly sometimes. But I think that's fundamentally better than an administrator making the decision when there's a controversy or just pretending or just sort of falling back on the conflation, which too many academics now do of free speech and academic freedom. To say like, oh no, we, we have a hand in, in policing our own policing. I shouldn't say that, right? I should be a lot more um, strategic. We have a hand in cleaning up our own house. Our the you know the public sphere is a, a cesspool right now. We can do a little bit on our front. Instead of policing, you can say maintaining our intellectual standards. It, it pulls Thank better. Yes, that's the democratic com competence part, right? Like, it, I mean, because we, we shouldn't forget it. I mean. Part of my question there too is also about the the idea that like there's different policy like there's a kind of policy and a kind of demos that the faculty have even though there are these hierarchies and and there's the you know the the precarious I mean it mimics in many ways the polity writ large but uh, you're for democracy for a reason right because of these principles that we're all created equal and therefore we all have an equal say and should have equal power these are the the sites of struggle that that you know. Fighting for democracy, you know, is taking place. And then there's this idea that other people can't tell academics in certain ways what to do because there's also, right, because there's a sense in which democracy is premised on, you know, everyone's equal, of course. But then there's a sense, too, that education is premised on rigor, academic rigor and tenure and expertise, which is hierarchical in a certain sense, necessarily, right? So, so like we also, but this gets into the part that truth matters and truth is what education is supposed to be about. And that's part of the piece that I think is, 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 is worth talking about too, right? Because all of the distortions of truth that Rufo and others are engaging in 
um, are, are undermining academia because in a sense, it's undermining the reality that this institution is supposed to help our demos be better at getting at truths to finding out what is actually good for us, right? Giving some reliable knowledge from which we can have those debates and discussions. And that's why, I mean, we didn't, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about how we got there as we were writing the book. I mean, Jennifer's right that uh, tweets would drop as we were mid-sentence, right? We're like, oh, <laughs> Jesus, now what do we do? Um, but one of them was, um, it wasn't a tweet, it was an article published in the journal Society, and we mentioned this in our excerpt from the, in the New Republic uh, by Lawrence Mead of NYU, and it was the same crap all over again. Guess what? Uh, black and brown people are culturally lazier and less likely to succeed. Now, as we point out in the book and in that excerpt, um, he is not some random guy whittling on his front porch and whistling Dixie to himself. <clears throat> he was a shaper of policy, public policy in New York and in the country. And when we got to that part of the book, <clears throat> I thought, okay, uh, Jennifer has touched already on the whole Coke funding connection. I thought, do we have to replay Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in Chains, about you know the the, <clears throat> the undermining of entire intellectual fields by by basically dark money and dark designs, uh, usually in the service of fighting against multiracial democracy. And I thought, I can't pull the thread that takes that whole sweater. Uh, um, instead, I'm going to just go to the Dunning School, which was the uh, academic historian version of uh, Southern Redemption. It spent uh, all its energy arguing that Black people were incapable of self-government after Civil War, and that is why Reconstruction failed. And it, you know, echoes of that can be heard in, in Mead's essay. And... I thought, well, that opens on to an enormous question, not only about how certain academic fields were dominated by racists explicitly, right, explicitly for the, uh, the object of uh, restoring uh, the South's glory, uh, basically the academic version of the lost cause. And then, next thing we knew, I was reading Ulrich Baer's book, um, what, what Snowflakes Get Right. And to go to the broader question we're, we're touching on here about the, the search for truth in, in general, uh, both in on, on campus and on Twitter, uh, oh, Albert Baer asks the question, he goes back to Skokie in 1977, and famously, of course, the ACLU defending the Nazis' right to march, and says, you know, this rests on a liberal faith that the Nazis are going to be either laughed out of the room or argued out of existence. Forty years later, here we are in Charlottesville, and we have to ask ourselves, did tolerating Nazis um, make us better people, or was it just good for Nazis? And our version of that argument is where we uh, say, look, you know, Justice Brandeis's famous line that sunlight is the best disinfectant may not be true. Sunlight may actually help Nazis grow. What you need, the best disinfectant here might be bleach. And so <laughs> that, uh, that was also a time, right? Bleach was big in the news that week. Um, the, whole, the, the whole book is like a palimpsest of pandemic horrors, you know? Um, but... Um, Great. Did you come up with that line? The best disinfectant is bleach for, for yeah, that the metaphor. Me. Is that you? Did, yeah. Well, I love that. We got to use well, that. That's tremendous. Uh, uh, That's... Oh, please feel free. Uh, and uh, the royalties are minimal. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll send my attorneys. Um, no, but officially, officially, we co-wrote the whole thing. But we know, you know, which section. And there are whole things where, uh, literally, where you know, Jennifer's handing me one sentence and I'm finishing it, or vice versa. But. Um, but that I, I was. Um, she was extremely busy that semester, and I, I was on leave. And so when I finished this discussion of Ulrich Baer, uh, Jennifer basically wrote the last I don't know, 10, 15 pages of that chapter and said, by the way, uh, we have to pay our dues here. A lot of this material is critical race theory. 
And Ulrich yeah. there doesn't always say so. And I said, okay, I don't want to go back over the hate speech thing because that leads us to speech codes. It leads us to a kind of dead end, but it also led us to a really horrible AUB statement about speech codes that basically says, you know, no idea that can be proscribed at a university, which is batshit. Um, can you remind everyone, uh, AUP, what it stands for and what it does? The American Association of University Professors was the, de the definer and continues to be the defender of tenure and academic freedom in the United States. Uh, but it also puts out, oh, we don't do it in visuals, but I always have it within arm's reach, a great big red book called the Red Book. Uh, full of policy documents and reports, right? Um, that basically set out best practices on everything from you know how to deal with governing boards to how to deal with student evaluations. A very interesting uh, response to uh, demands that um, for civility. A very interesting response uh, pushing back on the idea of trigger warnings, stuff like that. It basically tries to deal with everything that comes up in, in higher education. And in 1994, it came down very hard on speech codes. Uh, basically, there was a, a big uh, bucket of ice water thrown on that branch of critical race theory. Leaned much too hard against it. Much too hard in such a way as to, as to actually argue that no idea can be proscribed at a university. And that slurs uh, our ideas. ideas, right. And all I'm saying is that when we started with Larry, Larry, Lawrence Mead's essay was published in June 2020. It was literally as we just started to write this book and we were like, oh, holy shit, look at this. And then it was almost immediately retracted. Or, or uh, Twitter, uh, uh, academic Twitter, uh, called attention to it. And that led us down this road to argue simultaneously for, look, this is it has been endemic to academia. There are entire fields that were um, devoted to various kinds of racist twaddle for decades. And undoing that would take some work. Um, and also, that leads us on to uh, the, the relation of critical race theory to academic freedom, and ultimately to the question of the relation of academic freedom to free speech more generally. So that was when we knew we really had a book. Sometime in, in the fall of 2020, this really started to congeal. And the question was really just how to put it together and in one order. We had a number of arguments about that, but uh, we, we both won them all. So we're now... We <laughs> Is it yeah. fair... Go ahead, Ryan. Ryan has a question. I can, t I can tell like when I look at him sometimes, I can see... Go ahead. Well, I I, th I think it's just worth uh, uh, like drilling down on this. Like this is one of the more interesting parts of the book that that you're not like you are arguing for you know this 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 different conception of speech and the way that um, you know uh, certain ideas should be ruled out of like sort of academic polite society, for lack of a better word. Uh, be, because they lead to bad scholarship. Um, you mentioned Reconstruction. The Dunning School was hegemonic in the history profession and especially, I think, had tremendous influence on high school curricula. Oh, yeah. Up to the present day. Um, Reconstruction, I mean, I had a very good AP, high, uh, AP history uh, teacher in high school. Reconstru Reconstruction was basically not mentioned like at all. I mean, to some degree, but you know, the, the, like I read through the, the book, I went and I wouldn't actually look this up. Uh, you your and, book? Your yeah, book? The, the book that I had, you know, the edition, you know, I found it on LibGen and whatnot, but like, I want to do that. Yeah. The, I mean, you know, it, it was, it, it bore those scars and it bore the scars of this 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 movement that was complete horseshit. You know, like I grew up in Atlanta in the eighties, and 
states' rights. That's what the Civil yeah, War was. The, the I, grew up, I, I grew up in New York in the 70s, and I'm much, much older than Jennifer, as I tell you. Um, <laughs> Three but, years. But Jennifer's much wiser somehow. I don't know how that works. But but um, no, in all seriousness, I grew up in New York City public schools. I was taught about Reconstruction. I was told it was a failure because it was northern overreaching. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's, that's common, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that, that's, uh, I mean, that once we got into that, that's, that opened onto so many questions about how not only to, that we, we considered it the intellectual equivalent of trying to go back and, you know, take Woodrow Wilson's name off a, of a school of international affairs. But then we realized at one point in the book, we say, imagine a, a university doing that, but saying, we'll continue to employ professors who believe in and have Wilson's commitment to eugenics and race science. Well, so, it, yeah. <clears throat> Oh, I was just going to say that, I mean, and the actual original genesis of the book, since we're being so candid in general here, is because I have a colleague who very much feels like he's a walking Confederate monument or he's a walking (laughs) Cecil Rhodes. He's a walking Cecil Rhodes monument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And that's what it feels like to have him on our campus. And he's the one who wrote the case for colonialism. And so this idea of, Ryan, you keep you keep stressing ruling out. And that is that that sort of makes me nervous because, of course, that's how people are going <laughs> to yell at us about it. But this but then Alexius, you're talking Alexios, you're talking about some sort of basic idea of equality for a community. And if you're going to say that colonialism, you're going to try to bring that back into polite academic discourse. There is a way in which some things do need to be ruled out because and and, and it is about fitness. Ultimately, I mean, explain you, who Cecil Rhodes was. For people who may not know. Okay, so Rhodesia, he's the diamond yeah. guy. He's the, well, he's, I don't see he's a diamond. Is it Elon Musk's dad or? <laughs> yeah, he was the empire during, he was the imperial, the, the king empire. What Musk is going to be for social media, he was for imperialism. Yeah, the, former, it, the, the former prime minister of the Cape Colony and one of the most ardent exponents of um uh, the sun will never set on the British Empire, and what we need to do is exterminate all the brutes. Now, and if I could exterminate. annex the stars, I would, he said. Oh, good. Zimbabwe very, used to very. be called Rhodesia, uh, southern Rhodesia. There was a northern Rhodesia, Zambia, um, pre- previously. And there, there, was a, there was a guerrilla war in what is now Zimbabwe for like 20 years under Ian Smith. Uh, yeah. So, so like one of the most influential British imperialists in Africa who was all about subjugating, you know, like the black native inhabitants to work in his diamond mines. Basically. And to go back to Ryan, to go back to what you said, I think it's a really crucial point that's going to get obscured uh, in other discussions. So I, I want to make sure it's not obscured here. Um, one of the things we don't do, which early critical race theory did, it words the womb. It talked about the harm done by this kind of this kind of speech. First of all, we're white. We don't want to be speaking about other people's harms as if we know what they are. But also, I got a really bracing uh, pushback from a, a colleague who's, uh, now at the University of Colorado. Um, she's the first person I thank in the acknowledgments, Sonia DeLuca Fernandez, who said, I hate going that route because it leads to trauma porn. Like people have to testify to the harm done to them by 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 terrible words and terrible yeah. ideas. And I said, yeah, we're not doing that. We're not, we're not talking about harm. We're talking about this stuff is bad because it's incredibly stupid and incredible and, and demonstrably false. And we're just not going to go, go back and make the case for colonialism again. Yeah. I mean, if, as a troll, maybe, right? But 
Lisa, again. Let me dig into this. I, I, I want to dig into this more because I, I think our audience is is not only sympathetic, but but uh, I think now understands the idea that you know white supremacy and colonialism are not only odious, they're also untrue, you know, in their premises and so forth. Uh, but but what's really interesting that especially you know uh, for those liberals listening, uh, can you talk about? Because it seems to me that what you're doing, and you, you say this yourself, I think uh, what Charles. Mills does in his critique of liberalism, right? And what he exposes in, insofar as ideal, like Rawlsian ideal theory is untrue in practice and therefore masquerades and, and hides the exclusions and, and is therefore untrue as theory, right? You're doing that for, for, you know, academic freedom, as it were, right? And, and, and so I think you tell me, right? I like that. But, That's you slurp that? That's beautiful. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. And so 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 you know, you you are both Charles Mills here. And, and so can you can <laughs> you, you can you can you tell us the significance of that because I think it's important especially for liberals to hear why it is untrue, right, to take the neutrality approach to to these issues. I just want to point out it was Jennifer who said we got to we got to deal with Charles Mills here. Let's get on board. So Jennifer, Michael take it, Michael take it away. bleach. Michael is all the funny. Yeah, I got the bleach. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know if I can take it away because it, I mean, it's, it's so complex and it's so layered and it touches on so many different kinds of narratives that are becoming more and more clear to us. Um, I guess I would simply, if we want to just ground it in the thing that I, that, that sort of inspired the book in the beginning is having this colleague and I was actually the a union leader and um, I was a VP, what we call here in our labor union, the vice president for academic freedom and grievances. And we had people coming to us about this walking Cecil Rhodes monument. And um, the most obvious way to go about this would have been harm because it does do harm. It does do harm to have a person who's, who's constantly calling Black Lives Matter people thugs and talking about how wonderful it was under the empire and how, it, and how if you're a black intellectual and you don't go back to Africa, Literally, he says things like this on his Twitter. You know, back to Africa, you're a hypocrite for critiquing America. And this is literally the kind of thing that he says. And we actually weirdly got, and this is probably going too much in the weeds of the Portland state situation, but we got, we were at a rally for um, George Floyd after George Floyd's death. And we had a death on our campus at the hands of campus police, this man named Jason Washington. And the chair of black studies got up and spoke and he called out the union for not taking on this guy. And it, a bunch of why administration? Why not faculty senate? Why the union? And after a moment of being like, why us? We're like, all right, let's do something here. And the most obvious thing would have been the harm mode. But I just kept feeling like there's a fundamental unfitness. This man yeah. is going back to 60, 60 years ago and only looking at white, white British, white British and German uh, writers wrote about empire. He's looking at those historians. He's not looking at any of the stuff that's come in, come out uh, since by you know, post-colonial scholars, by black intellectuals, by you know, people all over the place. He's not taking any of that into account. And there's a certain way in which to go back to the notion of the community and equality. We're, that's part of what's expanded knowledge. Liberalism is, has, be, should be changed by someone like Charles Mills and his critique of racial liberalism. And this is the new world that we're in. And I do, yeah. I do also like your emphasis on the difference between theory and actual history, because there is a way in which that neutrality thing um, keeps allowing people to discard real the realities on the ground 
And so, you know, you have a, a white nationalist. You have here in Portland, we have Proud Boys and white nationalists who hold rallies for free speech. That's the name of their rallies, right? Free speech. And it's like, that's not really what's, what this is about, is it? So we can just sort of discard what the reality is and get into these liberal concepts and, and argue about these concepts. So you asked earlier, I think, I think before we started recording, how Jennifer and I ever wrote a book together. And um, again, it was a very wonky argument, but one thing that kicked us into high gear is that in one of her emails, she said, I just feel sometimes the left puts such an emphasis on equality that it misses aspects of freedom. And my head oh, exploded yeah. because I had just written a passage precisely to that purpose in The Left at War. Well, here's a parallel moment. <clears throat> so Jennifer writes to me about her colleague, Bruce Gilley. And I, I came back with the traditional liberal answer. I said, we got to tolerate these guys. And in the end, we're protecting our own freedom. We don't strip him of tenure just because he's an odious racist and an obvious troll, blah, blah, blah. And then I, <clears throat> uh, Jennifer pushed me a bit on that. And um, and then I said, by the way, read, read Charles Mills. And what, what, that, this time, the head explosion factor was, I was already familiar with the disability studies critique of John Rawls. And the entire social contract tradition of which he is kind of the culmination, going all the way back to Locke. And the idea is that we form societies for mutual benefit between free and equal partners. In Rawls's version, we do that behind a veil of ignorance where we don't even know our own position or our own interests so as to make sure the playing field is even. Well, the disability studies critique says that is never going to work for people with intellectual disabilities. You can't hypothesize those disabilities away. They will always be set at a discount. They will always be the recipients of some form of liberal charity or inclusion where they weren't at the table to, to begin with. To that, uh, now again, I, should, I shouldn't say that Charles Mills adds to that. He's, he's working a different uh, uh, vein altogether. But his argument is this was this ideal theory never works for people of color because uh, it's it's an abstraction, but we don't actually sit down with this veil of ignorance. People do know what their interests are. They do try to put their thumbs on the scales. And non-ideal theory uh, actually makes clear that there's an element of racial violence built into this compact. And unless we make that, but the interesting thing is he doesn't give up on it. He doesn't say, as so many academic leftists do, this shows you that liberalism is rotten root and branch, and everything that flowered after the Enlightenment is, you know, a poison tree. Instead, he says we can we can actually redeem we can you know save liberalism from itself by recognizing the centrality of race to the distortion of the liberal idea. So we came at this and okay, we already got the disability studies critique as to why this kind of abstraction doesn't work. Um, Mills and, you know, Mills himself was extremely influenced by the feminist thinker whose name I'm going to sadly not remember right now, but in the, in her feminist arguments around this. Yeah, and so we said, okay, let's um, let's take this on board and let's apply to academic freedom. Let's rethink that we have to defend fascists and, and white supremacists uh, under the banner of academic freedom any more than we have to do under the banner of the First Amendment, but especially with regard to academic freedom where we know there is no Intellect is not intellectually legitimate to predicate white supremacy on some sort of innate, either biological or cultural factors um, that create this hierarchy of races. Uh, if you go back 100 years, it's very hard to find anybody in the uh, white Western world who didn't believe that. Uh, it is impossible to overstate the, the ubiquity and the, the popularity of eugenics, even among liberals. Right? Yeah. And and now we know now we know where that went. And 
I went back also to, to Stephen Jay Gould's, for me, very moving introduction to the 1996 version of The Mismeasure of Man. Because he wrote that book in 1981 to go after the Shockley and Jensen uh, race uh, um, hierarchy uh, uh, grifters. And then here we are 15 years later and there's the bell curve. And you can just see Stephen Jay Gould going, you know, these, these zombie yeah, ideas yeah. will never die. We'll just never so die. So let's talk about Charles Murray. I think this, I mean, <laughs> I mean, because I think it's time to apply your theory to show how we can make judgments about when, when a certain outcome is indeed just and when, it, when it's, it's the wrong kind of thing to do to, to, uh, I, and I guess we get, we have to be careful again when we're talking about, you know, a Twitter reaction versus getting fired or something. So we can sort that out. But, um, can you talk about the, how this applies then to to fitness uh, and perhaps extramural speech with regards to a Charles Murray and when maybe what happened at, at uh, Middlebury versus like a Stephen as it Salida how you say his last name? Yes, it's Salida. Salida uh, and, and and his tweets. Can, can you can you maybe compare those uh, for us? I'm going to let Michael do that, but I'm just oh. going to preface Michael doing that by saying this was actually a, what made the person on my campus particularly helpful in some ways in thinking th through these things. Because the case for colonialism guy, who actually had as his Twitter handle for about four or five years, the pro-colonial professor, <laughs> he got tenure <laughs> on legitimate grounds. He, he worked on he worked on China. I actually became friends with him before he took this turn, and that was partly also why I felt sort of called upon in some way. Like, how could this person that? But so he um he worked on China and he worked on legitimacy of legitimacy of regimes, <laughs> and then to be pro colonial, right? So there's wow, just he worked wow. on legitimacy of regimes and he argued in that way that I think you know he's. You know, there's there's people that are on the far right who are super anti-China from a certain perspective, but it was a, but he it also can overlap with the human rights dissident anti-authoritarian perspective. So I took him to be calling for democracy for China, and that's that is what many the, the right to rule was one of his books, and he was always he was, he was if he was made fun of in those years, it was for being optimistic about the emergence of democracy in China. So then he comes out with the case for colonialism, but he got tenure legitimately. So yeah. here you have you have the adjunct who says something mild in her classroom, but has a student whose father uh, is part of an organized group that can then get a story into campus reform or the college fix, right? And then and she has no job security. And then you have someone with the ultimate job security who's bringing back really corrosive and damaging and completely ignoring the last 60 years of history and minimizing genocides and apologizing for them in the way that we don't allow when it comes to the Holocaust, but we apparently allow when it comes to Africa. So that, so that this question of what do you do with someone like this? And, and yeah. that would, and what the nice thing, and then I, I, I promised to hand it over to Michael for Murray and all the people that everyone else is familiar with Charles Murray and those people um, and Salida and the extramural question. But the, the thing is what we don't say is that we know what you're supposed to do with these people. We're just saying they can't use free speech as their, uh, is their weapon against their shield? Kind of, yeah, yeah. Is their shield exactly? That's the word I was looking for. Is their shield against any kind of criticism, disciplinary sanction, anything like that? Because we're not. We don't call for anyone to be fired. So much as that, you guys need. We need to actually hold one another accountable because the democracy is suffering because of our lack of democratic competence in a way. Okay, Michael. I'm sorry. Oh what? 
Yeah, that was great. <laughs> um, now you have me, and unfortunately, you left me with the, the Charles Murray part of the, uh, the, <laughs> of, of the glass. The glass is less than half full now. So, um, you know, there's a way to say that, uh, as we just heard, actually, from uh, another interlocutor, that um, not everything about Charles Murray is devoted to the kind of bell curve, um, pioneer-funded, uh, neo-eugenicist nonsense. Um, you could actually come up with a critique of welfare. You could have a critique of the so-called cognitive elite in a post-industrial society without, it would be a different person, than my, but you could, you could do all that without turning <coughs> to racist uh, pseudoscience. So it's a it's a tough call, you know. What, uh, you know what, what what erupted at, at Middlebury was about Charles Murray's work on the bell curve, and you know we also but we can't really answer the question of what do you do with um, differently controversial people. Now, of course, Murray is not an academic, right? He's he's in a think tank, but you know John Yu and Peter Singer. Um, Peter Singer, you know, uh, basically nobody in disability studies says his name without spitting or without wearing garlic. You know, but of course, he's also the guy who came up with the idea of animal rights. His work on poverty is is really extraordinary. Um, so with poverty and animals, that's great. But just don't get him started on disability because he doesn't know what in the world he's talking about and doesn't care to learn. So um, I'm not sure exactly. You know, Jennifer and I don't um, we don't adjudicate a single case. Uh, we don't we, we resisted the temptation to say, OK, well, this thing, occasionally we endorse uh, the idea, for example, that Joy Carica at uh, Oberlin okay. could be fired for being an anti-Semitic crackpot, or that James Traley, James Tracy, Tracy yeah. at Florida Atlantic uh, can be fired for being a conspiracy theorist crackpot, Sandy Hook truth, or any tormentor of the families of the children well, who were slain that day. claiming them expertise in communications. In communications and media, right? So that's, that's legit. Um, but it's... I, I think there's a... Uh, um, a difference of kind, not of degree, between Charles Murray and Stephen Salida, partly because what happened to Salida was he was hired by Illinois and then dehired an unprecedented uh, move in academia based on uh, tweets that he dashed off all through the summer of 2014 during Israel's quote-unquote incursion in, into Gaza. And uh, some, of the, some of the tweets were really um, incendiary. Uh, a few of them seemed to cross the line into um, uh, almost, you know, a blood libel kind of material. Others were not. They were tweets. There were hundreds of them. And how to understand them in, in context is a very difficult question. We actually spent some time on that in our, in our chapter about context. But there, um, you've got an example of actual cancel culture. I mean, he actually lost his job. He'll never work in academia again. It's been eight years. I think he's still driving a school bus. And the, um, the question is like, what did his tweets actually demonstrably prove his unfitness to teach? We don't think so. The AUP doesn't think so. That's a pretty high bar to clear. I mean, your tweets, your speech has to um, really directly suggest that you have no idea what you're talking about in a professional capacity. Yeah. And that's, and that's why we put Mark Crispin Miller in that category as well, because he's signed on for almost every conspiracy theory since you know, since 9-11, he's now the academic equivalent of the guy who takes his um, medical advice from Joe Rogan, only he does it as a professor of media studies. And that's concerning, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth uh, emphasizing this this point. You know, it's maybe a sort of 
tactical, um, somewhat cynical thing to note, but that racism is dumb. It's bullshit. Uh, that, you know, if you're talking that like colonialism was good for Africa, I lived in South Africa for two years. I did the, I did the Peace Corps in South Africa. Um, I, I traveled in Namibia, Botswana, uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe. And the idea that, that like being dominated by Europe was great for this place is fucking stupid. Like genocide post office. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. especially, I mean, you go like I didn't even get I, I've always wanted to go. Some of my friends uh, were in the DRC that, you know, the places that are still just totally messed up from from being dominated by, you know, like like uh, the Belgian uh, King Leopold II killed like half the population of the Congo. Uh, He's a hero, according to my colleague. And he says, you can quote me on that. I mean, that is like Hitler apologia in my book. You know, I mean, that is just disgusting. Well, and and, I mean, not just disgusting, but ridiculous. Like to to say that, like, here's a guy, you know, who, who, who walked into a place that's like the size of Western Europe and killed half the population. And like, he's some sort of hero, you know. That, fuck so, off! So, that's that's I mean, in that's insane. <laughs> that is intellectually ridiculous and preposterous. And- I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to be overbroad here, but there seems to be like because this is so confusing for people because of how much it applies to right, lefts. Like, there's so many. Every ideological group is involved here, and and, and yet I think it's pretty clear that like. The leftists are getting fired more often. Like yeah, they it have seems, the, it yeah. sure seems like well, it. Yeah, like, like they're they're the ones that tend to be getting fired for speaking truth to power. Quite honestly, right? So, so like the side of truth tends to be on the left, and they're also the ones who seem to be suffering the consequences for 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 speech that is challenging status quo, uh, exclusionary, like you know problems. And then on the right, you have as as you talked about manufactured outrage, and then like hurt feelings of students, parents, whomever, right? When hearing about historical truths, and when when there are attempts to educate about these problems of exclusion, and so like the conflation is very problematic. I'm uncomfortable with this divisive concept the, of slavery. The classic, yeah. The, Exactly. The, the classic conflation of actual racist practices with calling someone a racist, right? And as, as the same. So, so can you, can you help us through like how that can be, can, can lead us to understand better, like where we should be more concerned with protecting people and where we should be more concerned with where power is being abused at the expense of both truth and people. Right. One quick thing about that, because I think you're right that, um, uh, you can find uh, crackpots, I and mean, you're not doing both sides. I know. I mean, we don't even know where Mark Crispin Miller is uh, politically anymore. <clears throat> there are a number of um, ostensibly left theorists like Giorgio Agamben in Italy who basically lost their mind over Corona. Yeah, we did an episode on Agamben. We actually did an episode on uh, Arendt's uh, Truth and Lion piece as well. That's oh, cool. Oh, I should listen to that. Maybe you got more that I can use from that than I got from reading. I'm not sure. But But to go in a different direction and take this back to the question of tenure. So what we propose in these cases is that in so many of these cases, oh, again, I'll tell you where this came from. It's the summer of 2020. Things are breaking every day, right? Black people are getting murdered. Um, And uh, Princeton comes out with this, uh, the Princeton faculty come out with this statement. One One of the things they call for is a racism committee. 
<clears throat> I would review people's work to see if, in fact, you know, is in fact racist or colonialist. And <clears throat> of course, Connor Friedersdorf hit the roof. Um, so this is as he's want to do. And I said to Jennifer, we got to take our distance from this. And Jennifer's like, Michael, you're missing the point again. Um, we already have this, but it's in the DEI office or it's in the Title IX office or it's in the Human Resources office. People are being reviewed. And we, number, we enumerate a bunch of those cases in the book of people being suspended, being disciplined um, by basically middle management in these other offices that are ten, literally tangential to the academic enterprise, although valuable offices. We're not against DEI or Title IX or, well, I'm not sure how we are in human resources. But here's the thing. We I mentioned, Jennifer mentioned at the outset, about anywhere about like up to three quarters of college professors in the United States no longer have tenure. They can be fired for any damn thing. And uh, your question reminded me of George Cicerio Miller at Drexel. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually a quite funny tweet. All I want for Christmas is white. Geo, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a little building of what the context is. <laughs> right. you, have to, you have to know the, the world yes. of, of Tucker Carlson. And it's actually Trump. hilarious. Yeah. But anyway, um, he got death threats. He eventually resigned. Right? Um, but this can happen to anyone who's not tenured is basically an at-will employee that have all the job protections of someone working at Burger King and they can be fired just like so. Our proposal to have them reviewed instead by academic freedom committees of their peers would actually give them more protection than they have now because yeah. we don't make the distinction between tenured and non-tenured faculty for this. If, an, if a non-tenured faculty member says crazy crackpot things about how good uh, uh, Belgium was for the Congo, um, well, first of all, they, in the end, they probably should be fired, but they should be reviewed by their colleagues first. And they yeah. should be reviewed, not because this does harm, but because it's not intellectually legitimate. It is not the kind of thing responsible and respectable people say in a university setting if they want to work at a university. There are a couple, couple of things there, if I could. I want to get back to this question of moral outrage and moral hierarchy and, and power, the role of power, because... Salida having moral outrage on behalf of Palestinians it, or making a joke about white genocide is not the same thing as making a joke about Herero genocide in Africa. Right. Right? So, yeah. um, and, and to try to get at that is hard because we're in such a you know neutrality kind of contentless mode. Um, so if I can bring it back to that, I will, but there was something else that, oh, you, Michael, you know, has such a, Michael's being so generous to me and I want to give him one compliment, which is that he's so great with words. He came up with the idea that people get investigated for some of the, their racist stuff through a category error. So yeah. you get so who so who's who's the guy that that we made that argument about in terms Chris, Mark Crispin Miller. Oh, that's Crispin Miller. He, he so was he reviewed by title for Title Nine. Yeah. DEI. So someone can be and my colleague is the same. He gets investigated all the time by DEI, but they can't get at the unfitness thing. Right. So you get it. It's sort of like we are getting investigated, but we're not getting investigated in a way that is incorporating <laughs> faculty judgment and faculty authority, and that and that ends up not working half the time, right? right. Yeah, uh, I'm only yeah. laughing at thinking you could paraphrase Jennifer by saying we're not being investigated by the right people. <laughs> not not the yeah. argument we want to lead with, you know. But yeah, <laughs> but the, I mean, maybe to wrap us up, we've been we're we're a bit over an hour now. Um, but but I, it seems like this, you know, the 
sort of re- you're you're reconciling the 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 whole uh topic of discussion here with this you know uh i mean faintly ridiculous like faculty committee that you're proposing here <laughs> it's like so you have this you have this elitist institution. you know what they say in, in all the parks in all the parks and all the cities there are no statues of committees <laughs> Right, right. Which and yet, and yet. Favor. But therefore, no statues to take down. But you, you, you have an elitist institution in which, like, you know, you have a sort of minority of people with, like, expertise, and they are able to, to exercise command over, like, a certain, you know, uh, uh, type, you know, bit of uh academic journals and so on it's like this person is influential and like they 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 have power and like so on and so forth but uh trying to reconcile that with democracy and equality and egalitarianism like that's a little bit of a difficult scenario and i think the way that you've proposed it if you know i mean it would be difficult to implement like all democracy you know it's like okay we're going to have some 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 committees and stuff it's like so we're going to have all the people who who legit know what they're talking about and they're going to like have a sort of you know a committee to you know, adjudicate these questions because it is the fact that certain things are difficult to learn. Uh, there, there, there is a, such a thing as specialized expertise and the, uh, that like it can be legitimate to sort of exile certain people if they are saying ridiculous shit like, uh, Belch and Congo was a paradise and that, oh, it was so great to get your hands and, and feet cut off by the Belgian uh, rubber, uh, you know, syndicate for not delivering enough, you know, uh, rubber sap to the fucking like company that like just sicko, disgusting, blatantly false stuff. And like this, this is a type like, like it's sort of a uh the synthesis in a way of of the elitist sort of implications of liberalism and like intellectual um you know uh uh, uh, uh currents that exist in that tradition with socialism and egalitarianism and um you know like how everyone should should be available to critique you know the consensus and and like you should you should be able to have you know a certain um horizontal review yeah but, horizontal, but, but in yeah. not one person yeah. not one exactly side percentage. That's right. dispersed yeah. across peers when i was writing my review and i thought i was immediately drawn to uh wb du bois and black reconstruction and where and he in 1935 i think you know was just like this dunning school stuff is a bunch of bullshit and he adduced evidence at great length just absolutely dispositive i've read this book it's it's an just a, an astonishing feat of scholarship for one one guy who couldn't even go to the archives they wouldn't let him in cuz he was a black man you know i mean one of the most impressive intellectual achievements i've ever seen in my entire life and and he, you know, that was uh, the foundation for Eric Foner in ni- 1980, you know, uh, publishing Reconstruction as like a total reconsideration of the entire thing. Oh, the narrative that we've been pushing forever was uh, 180 degrees from the truth. And so, like, I just I think that 
it, it was reading about this and I was talking, you know, with some of the editors of the American Prospect. They're like, well, this committee thing sounds a little bit ridiculous. But I but <laughs> I was convinced by it. You know, when I the more I thought about it, they're like, because no, it's actually, democracy, but it's democracy yes. within, right? Exactly. But, but it's also yes. like democracy yes, in the right context. Yeah. It's right. also uh, structurally analogous to democracy in that it's the worst alternative except for all the others. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, and we, uh, we honestly, we cannot try to get recourse outside of our own authority as faculty, because then we're asking for the state or for some someone I, without, you, you just can't. So there Chris is a way Rufo. which, yeah. Oh, well, well, actually I wanted to tell Ryan when he was talking about Chris Rufo earlier in that tweet where he openly admits that he's just emptied critical race theory of any content, put in everything that a sort of white uh, anxious uh, conservatives will be afraid of. Is that it's really terrifying because what I've started to look at, I working on these Senate resolutions, I tried to make sure to also read some of these damn bills and some of the sort of the, the and you think, and I did even, I mean, I did who work on this stuff. I thought attorney generals are smart, right? Take a look at Montana. No, no fuck no. Take a look at Austin <laughs> Nudson's, Austin Nudson, Montana attorney general, who's weighing in, who's been asked to weigh in on whether critical race theory is racist. And he says, yes. And look at who he cites. The majority of his sources are Chris Rufo. Yeah. So, the, so this, the yeah. difference is a, fa- a panel of faculty who are experts in their field. We, we, we've been trained in who is a good legitimate source and who isn't a legitimate source. We've been trained in looking at these things. And so there's, it's not perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but it's probably going to be a little bit more deliberative and a little bit more substantive than the Montana attorney general. And as you said, Jennifer, it does matter that academia has made gains based on, right, like rejecting the totally exclusionary premises of white supremacy. Like, so those institutions themselves already have come to accept certain foundational truths that, that the public writ large has not, right? About, about, about human equality and, and about how, uh, you know, hegemony masquerades and hides the, the, these harms, right? So, well, I just want to thank you both for, I mean, I, I think we could have talked for two more hours easily this there's such a rich text so much to to, uh disentangle and uh yeah thank you for for keeping this conversation going it's really really wonderful and and i hope you'll you'll come back on the podcast to to talk some more sometime love to thank you so much yeah delightful thank you so much ryan when you read the book catch the subtitle it's up top (laughs) <laughs> the book the book is called It's Not Free Speech, Race, Democracy, and the Future of Academic Freedom by Michael Barabay and Jennifer Ruth. Thanks for coming on. Two for podcast. two, I think. Yeah. I Thank do you. I do honestly recommend it very highly. I it is it is very relevant today for for like this this it, it's a very stupid conversation going on. But it's going to be important. happening, and, so and this like will clear the cobwebs out of your head. I it's, think it's for a written lot of so Americans. well. Um, you know, synthesizing two brilliant voices. Uh, you know, so everyone should should go out, get it, share it with your racist uncle uh, at uh, all the holidays. <laughs> we have a we have a recent uh, Uncle Ten Percent Discount coupon that we can sell. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but you they, so much. Thanks for of listening, course. everybody. We will see you in the next episode.